see. My name is Nina. I'm a marijuana addict. Um, and, you know, it's, I have to confess that these days when I tell my story, it sort of feels like telling someone else's story. Because I was 31 years old when I got into recovery, and I'm 65 years old now. I've been going to meetings pretty much the whole time. Uh, recovery is a really big part of my life, and this fellowship is a huge part of my life. But my story is kind of old. It's good to keep telling it. Um, it reminds me. But it does sort of feel like someone else's story now. Um, so I just want to start by saying that. I, um, I really think my story as a marijuana addict starts long before I ever picked up a joint. Uh, I had a, a protected, privileged childhood in a very close but enmeshed family, and there was a lot of undercurrent of unhappiness that were not acknowledged that I picked up on very quickly. I just knew, and there was somehow, as early as I can remember, uh, I found myself living in basically a privately defined world. I mean, those weren't the words I had then, but that question in our literature really speaks to me. Uh, I lived in a fantasy world. I knew it was a fantasy world. Um, it wasn't like I was confused. I don't think that people realized that I was getting my emotional needs met a lot through these fantasies um, because I was, I was a very good girl. I did really well in school. I did everything that was expected of me. But my, I had this secret place that I would go to to take care of myself emotionally. And this uh, privately defined fantasy world, it changed over the years. And, and um, when I got to adolescence, it started being less and less uh, satisfactory. Um, and I was... I had friends. I had um, a, I had a small circle of friends, and yet I just I was very shy and awkward around you know the opposite sex and all that stuff. So when I found marijuana, actually I should back up a second. Um, I I was a teenager in the 60s, in the late 60s, and everybody was doing drugs. One of my closest friends was dropping acid at the age of 13, and at that point I was like really like very much against drugs and sort of a obnoxious um, sort of goody two-shoes type. Um, but somehow over the next few years, my attitude changed. And I started smoking dope when I was 16. And from the very first time I got high, it was like, oh, wow, this is the answer. This is this. I just solved I just solved the whole problem of life. I mean, I had drank alcohol before that. My family's very alcohol-oriented. You know, uh, whenever we got together with the grandparents and the aunts and uncles, it was always around cocktails. And as soon as the children got to be 13, we were given a drink until we were old enough to have a cocktail. Um, and so I had drunk alcohol, and uh, I'd even gotten drunk a few times, um, but... I really didn't like getting drunk. I didn't like the hangover. Uh, it, it just, I, I mean, I just never responded to it the way I did to marijuana. Marijuana was just, um, I knew it was my drug from the beginning. Uh, 
over over the following years, I, I experimented with a few other drugs. I never did hallucinogens. I was always really scared to do hallucinogens. Um, but I I did speed and cocaine, and um, I actually really liked speed, but I, I was afraid of speed too. For um, I had my mother was a speed addict, um, so I'll I'll get into that anyway. Um, so really, marijuana was my drug of choice from the beginning. And from the beginning, it was just like to get as much and to smoke as much as I could. But I had to limit it so that it didn't affect my good student, good girl um, role. Um, so, and also, in those days, it wasn't that easy to get. And I lived in New York where um, right about the time I started smoking pot, they made it like a really, really serious felony. I mean, like years and years in prison. And um, so there was a whole um, legal, um, I was really scared by that. It didn't make it cool to me. I was never really the type that went for that sort of thing. So um, it, it was getting, getting drugs was always a big thing. And a big problem. And so one of the things that I learned to do pretty soon, even before I got out of high school, was find friends who had good access to drugs. This was like my major motivation in picking friends was to, are, basically are they dealers? Do they know how to get good drugs? Um, so it just, you know, I, at the time I didn't really realize what was happening, but really what was happening was it was becoming the organiza organizing principle of my life. So that was going along, and I was doing school, and, and I graduated from high school and was set up to go to college. And um, I had this boyfriend, and he was, um, his his best friend was the drug dealer, so that's, that's why it was very convenient. But anyway... Um, I just, I liked him and everything, but it was mostly about, I'm supposed to have a boyfriend. It was all like this pretense world. And what it was, what, what I was really motivated about was getting the drugs and getting stoned and being stoned as much of the time. And what happened was that um, the day before I was supposed to go away to college, uh, a week after I finally lost my virginity to this guy, we didn't know what we were doing, um, my mother, I, I came home. I was getting ready to leave town to go to college the next day. We came home, and my mother was dying. I watched her die. I had no idea she was sick. She had had cancer a few months before, but she, this was not what well, it wasn't cancer. Something happened. They still don't know what killed her. Um, she had been, I found out later, a, a prescription amphetamine addict for about 15 years. In those days, in the 50s and 60s, at least in New York City, uh, they were giving women heavy-duty prescription amphetamines, supposedly to lose weight. And she got completely addicted, and she did the whole doctor shopping thing. And then on top of that, she, um, she got breast cancer, and in those days they did really heavy-duty radiation treatment. And I, all of it together just blew out her heart, I guess, although I, they didn't really know. But at any rate, from my point of view, this was uh, really a very, this was a trauma I was not prepared psychologically to deal with. My relationship with my mother is very complicated. I've spent the last 50 years thinking about it and figuring it out and in therapy about it. But I was extremely enmeshed with her, so much so that I had her feelings. Like my whole relationship with my dad was really her feelings about him. I realized that later. Um, 
and I was enmeshed with her. I felt guilty. I had this message somehow that my growing up and becoming a woman and becoming sexual was taking away from her. She was like having her breast cut off at the same time I was losing my virginity. This kind of uh, competitive dynamic. Anyway, coming home and finding her dying, watching her die, feeling relief when it stopped in the death throes. The day before I was supposed to go away to school, on this unconscious level, it wasn't totally unconscious, I completely internalized this and took responsibility for it. And it just, I mean, I just went out into a tailspin. And um, spent the next, I didn't go away to school the next day. I, I was just in too much shock. I spent the next few months using this new sexual relationship with my boyfriend as a tool to hurt myself. I, I was numb and I just, I was punishing myself. Um, I used him and um, I, I was just uh, really in bad shape. As I don't know exactly how long it lasted, the uncontrolled sobbing, the walking down the streets in New York City and completely losing it, having to run out of concerts because I just started weeping uncontrollably. Um, and there was a period of time, probably a couple months, when it was so bad I couldn't even smoke dope. But then I started smoking dope again, and um, I felt, I guess I felt good enough to be able to do it. But anyway, um, I went away to college the next, in January, and I broke up with a boyfriend, and I just sort of um, decided that I was, uh, wasn't going to date. I was, had no sexual response to men. I, I was just punishing myself sexually. So then what happened was I, I got made friends with this woman at college who um, was the one person on our dorm room floor who had really good access to dope. And she and I became best friends. And the following year, she decided that she was in love with me, that she was gay and that she was in love with me and that I should become her lover. And you know, at this point, I mean, I really wasn't interested. Um, and I really didn't think I was gay. But uh, I was at this point where I really didn't care. And um, I, I sort of resisted, but not too much. You know, I, 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 she was my access to dope. Um, and then she got gang raped at gunpoint in our dorm room over the Thanksgiving break. And all this shit in my head, all this unconscious stuff about I didn't save my mother, I need to save those, I shouldn't have saved her, I, I'm responsible, it just kicked in. And so I became her lover and we got into this really unhealthy relationship. And um, about a year later we moved out to the West Coast because I was in the closet with my family and I didn't want them to know. And I didn't know how to deal with my family, which at this point was my two brothers and my father. I felt like I didn't belong. We are very gender, there's a real gender divide in our family. And when my mother died, it was like, well, where do I even belong in this family anymore? And none of us had any emotional tools to deal with this death, which just threw all of us for a loop. So I came out here to California with this woman and um, I was terrified, I was miserable, I was lost. She, um, she wasn't very nice to me. Um, she had this affair with my cousin, and she she was always kind of kicking me out of the house and saying, "Go do something." I was I I was just terrified of the world, and the only thing that made me feel safe was smoking dope. And um, so 
I, you know, I puttered around with different temp jobs for a while, and then I went back to school out in Berkeley, and I think I dropped out of college three times before I finally finished my four-year degree. Um, I went to three different schools, and I dropped out, I think, three times. But I did finally get a degree, and then um, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I got this temporary job working for the Environmental Protection Agency back when it was brand new, and I was just a clerk typist, and it was a great job because everybody was doing drugs, and I would just go to work stoned, and I could do this really stupid clerk typist job stoned, and I could go out on lunch, get stoned again, and it was just really fun walking around the financial district in San Francisco stoned on my ass during break. Um, I liked that job, but it was only a one-year job, and I was working with all of these law students. Um, I guess it was the kind of place where law students, I don't know, anyway. So, and they said, hey, Nina, you know, you would really be good. You would really like law school. You would be good at it. You should apply for law school. Now, I, I, I never, uh, my father always wanted to be a lawyer. He didn't become a lawyer because his father was a refugee, Jewish refugee from Europe, and he said that Jews shouldn't become lawyers because if they have to lose their country, then they'll lose their profession. So my grandfather was an engineer and my father was an engineer, but he always wanted to be a lawyer. So somehow me and one of my two brothers, we got this idea that we had to go to law school. In those days, that was sort of for in the group, in the class that I came from, that was sort of um, a default choice. Um, I always knew that I did not believe in our system. I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, my former boyfriend, he had he had gone to law school. I, but you know, it's just when I was smoking dope, the way I made decisions was like, well, you think I should do that? Uh, okay. I guess so. It was like the path of least resistance. It was the easiest way, even though I knew I didn't want it. I knew I didn't didn't want to be a lawyer, and that I didn't believe in our legal system. Um, and I also knew my dad would be really happy. He'd probably help me financially. And so I applied to law schools, and I got in at Berkeley. And I went to law school at Berkeley for three years, and it was just like oh, I'm back around the kitchen table with my dad debating in high school. It was like I, I had been raised to do that, and I was very good at the school, and I was very um, happy there, and I, there were really good drugs. Everybody was doing lots of drugs. I was mostly just doing um, marijuana and hashish and edibles, but there was a lot of other drugs there too. Um, so it worked really, the school part was good. And then I had to decide, well, what am I going to do after law school? Then you're supposed to be a lawyer, right, if you go to law school. And I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer, and so I went into this panic mode. Oh, let me back up for a second. By this time, I was with a different woman. The first one I had come out with, that relationship didn't last very long. And I met this other woman who was really depressive. She was an alcoholic. And... Um, she reminded me of my mother somehow, and we got into this really dysfunctional, unhealthy relationship that within two years was like completely dependent. I mean, she was financially and emotionally dependent on me, and anyway, 
So that was in the background. And um, where was I? Okay, so I'm in law school. And so this law school I went to had this connection, this job that you applied for two years in advance to be a clerk for one of the federal trial judges. And so there was this job that one of my professors could hook me up with. It's all about connections. And he um, was, this, this judge was in Connecticut, which is where I had gone to school, um, where I'd met the first woman I was with. That was in the same town in Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut. So I decided, well, passive least resistance. I'll apply to this. I knew it was the kind of job that I would like. It isn't practicing law. It's just reading about law, uh, the cases, and writing up the opinions for the judge. And um, so it wasn't actually having to practice law. But it would mean going across the country, which I was very, very, I w it was very difficult for me to make that decision. I love California. And all my confusion and all my anxiety and depression of the years the one thing I always knew was I'm just so glad I'm in California. I'm just so glad I got out of New York City. I, I grew up, I was born and raised in New York City, and I just don't like it. It's too crowded. I never liked it. So it's always, you know, no matter how bad my life was, it was one blessing. I lived in California, and here I am seriously considering moving back to the East Coast. And I was just running around like a chicken without my head asking everybody what they thought I should do. And I was just so filled with anxiety. And finally, I just said, okay, I'll do it, like jumping off the high, you know, off the high board or whatever. And um, so I committed myself a year and a half ahead of time to go to Hartford, Connecticut, and do this one-year job as this clerk for this trial judge. And um, then as soon as I did that, I regretted it. And I was miserable for the rest of the year and a half. But one of the advantages of it, I thought, was that my girlfriend, my partner, would not, I didn't think she would come with me. I mean, I didn't think she would cross the country just to be with me. And I thought it would be a way of getting out of that relationship. Because by this time, I was feeling really a lot of sexual feelings for men. And um, I, w I was living again in a fantasy world, just fantasizing about men, flirting with the men I worked with, um, but never doing anything about it. It was like I was stuck. It was like I was, I was paralyzed in this. Um, you know, I just, I was in the quicksand of living in my privately defined world and not believing that I could manifest my own true desires and, and wishes in my life. Um, I never in a million years at this point thought it had anything to do with the fact that I smoked pot every night because um, all during this time I smoked pot every night. I don't even think at this point I had been trying to stop yet. Um, but anyway, um, my girlfriend did follow me across the country and spent the next year making me feel guilty for making her go across the country. She never got a job. She sat depressed in this apartment for this anyway. So we did that and then um, came back to California a year later. And then it really was time for me to become a lawyer. And that is the thing that really was my bottom. Was um, So I, I got this job with this lawyer in San Francisco and he, I was supposedly being groomed to be 
eventually like a partner. It's a very small firm, and it was really sleazy. I mean, he had this reputation as being a First Amendment lawyer, but he, what he thought that meant was representing these horrible religious cults. And uh, I just, I didn't want to do it. I, I, I ran up against this sort of psychological block where even though I was really good in law school, I couldn't do it. I couldn't practice law. And so I was like in this job and I was faking it and I was, it was just a nightmare and smoking pot every night and just getting more and more depressed and more and more anxious. Um, and then after about, I don't know, trying to think of the time, I guess it was before the, I guess it was when I came back. Um, and I got this job that that's when I started trying to stop smoking pot. I don't really remember exactly when I first started trying to stop. Um, by then, I was sort of trying to, to stop because it wasn't working very well anymore. I was, it was making me more anxious and uh, paranoid. And um, I w it was just like every night I would just come home from work having had a miserable day. I'd watch TV, smoke dope all night, eat food, and just feel miserable. Um, so I started trying to stop and found that I couldn't, which was a real shock to me because everybody everybody said marijuana wasn't addictive. And, I mean, this, this was back in the day when they didn't think cocaine was addictive. Everybody was saying how powdered cocaine wasn't addictive back when I was practicing law and in law school. I mean... That's how crazy things are. Anyway, I thought I was the only person in the world who was addicted to marijuana. I mean, I knew what addiction meant. I knew that if you wanted to stop and you tried over and over and over again and you couldn't stop, that that meant you were addicted. But I didn't. I thought I was the only person. And um, anyway, I couldn't stop. And so I was in that place where I'm sure a lot of you have been, where you try in this strategy and that strategy. I would smoke my stash and not buy any more, only to find myself running over to my friend's house who had it. Um, when I was still picking my friends by who, who had good access to dope. Dope was still completely illegal then. This was in the 80s. Um, so this went on for a long time. And then finally, I just I had to figure out a way to get out of this job. So um, my grandmother had died. My mother's mother had died. And I inherited some money because my, my mother had predeceased her mother. So the money that she could have inherited if she were alive went to me and my brothers. And so I inherited some money. So I decided, okay, I know how to get out of this job. I'm going to tell this guy that I've decided to open up my own practice. And now this is completely absurd. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to be a lawyer. I had no skills. I knew how to be a law clerk. I did not know how to practice law. I was terrified of it. I mean, literally just the idea that I would have to file papers and there was a deadline in the court, I would, would just, I would just have panic attacks. I mean, it, I was completely ill-equipped to do this. So I went out and spent all this money buying, I found this friend of mine from, from law school who wanted to go in with me. We weren't partners, but we were going to share an office. So we found this office in Oakland, and we, I spent all this money furnishing it, buying this nice desk and this nice chair and all this crap. You know, I, had, I mean, it's absurd. So there I was. I was supposed to be a lawyer. I, I don't think in the year and a half that I practiced law, supposedly, I think I had four clients. 
It was just money draining out, this inheritance just draining out of the bank account, watching it go, smoking more and more dope, being more and more miserable, uh, feeling more and more stuck. And then, then a miracle happened. I, um, I went to visit. My relationship was in terrible shape. I mean, um, we were basically not lovers. It was like I felt like she was a mother superior in the nunnery, just keeping me from chased from going after men. She knew I wanted to be with men. She, she, anyway, it was a terrible. So, but we went up to Oregon to um, visit an old friend who had been one of my big smoking buddies who had gotten clean and moved up to Portland. And while we were there, she took me to this AA meeting. And there was no MA at this time. And at this AA meeting, there were all these potheads. And they were talking about marijuana addiction. And something happened to me at that meeting that I will never, ever forget. I had this immediate, intense spiritual experience. And it was like there's this thousand-ton anvil suspended an inch above my head. And it represented my compulsion to use. And I knew in that split second, in that moment, I knew that it was lifted off of me and that if I stayed in awe of that miracle, I would never have to use again. This just came over me. I have never used since that day. That was over 34 years ago. After that meeting, I went back home. I didn't go to meetings right away. I was still hanging out with people using. I was still drinking for a while. I didn't use pot. And slowly, I started wanting more in my life. And um, I went to this couples counselor with my partner who had stopped drinking by then. And the couples counselor told me to go to Al-Anon. So I went to Al-Anon. And I started hearing about the 12 steps. And I started hearing things like, let us love you until you learn to love yourself. I will never forget my first meeting. I was sitting in the corner, in the corner of this room. It's actually the same room that my home group is in to this day. I've been going to this home group for over 30 years. And it's in the same room as this first Alan I meeting I went to. But at any rate, I heard them say that. Let us love you until you learn to love yourself. And it was just like, let me just stay here. I finally found a safe place. I didn't speak up for weeks in Al-Anon. Um, but finally, a couple of months later, I started speaking up and saying my truth. And from that moment on, everything started to change. My life just, it was like all the things I had wanted to change, all the things about my life that I was so sick of, that I knew needed to change, that I, was, that I was a lawyer, that I was with women, I wanted to be with men. All of this stuff, all, it started just, the quicksand just flew away. I could start, it just started happening. So the first thing that happened was that I broke up this 10-year relationship with this woman, and I started getting involved with a man who I met in recovery much too early, but that's what I needed to do. And um, then I started, I, I had an experience a couple of months into 
actually really working an Al-Anon 12-step program, I had an experience where I got a consequence of something I had said when I was drinking. I just had a few drinks with a family friend, a friend of my father's, and I had said some indiscreet things about my stepmother, which I probably wouldn't have said if I hadn't had a couple drinks. And it came back to me, exaggerated. It was just a big, big problem. And I said to myself, hey, wait a second, Nina. You just had an adverse consequence from drinking. And I said, yeah, i got to stop drinking. So I stopped drinking too. And then I started going to AA. And I started going to AA, and I was going regularly until one day I saw on the, on the fellowship bulletin board this little message, a note, flyer. Do you have a problem with marijuana? Come join us, Marijuana Addicts Anonymous. And I've been going to MA ever since. I finally found my home. I found my spiritual home. I've I've found um, I've found a, a spiritual grounding for my life. And um, I realized I spent most of my time here talking about what happened, um, and not really so much about recovery. But let me just say that I just decided that going to a meeting every week was a non-negotiable requirement. Uh, I had a lot going on in my life. I got involved in a complicated situation with this guy I was dating, and he had these two kids. And um, then I decided to give up law, and I went back to school and became... I wanted to be a drug counselor. I got my master's in marriage and family therapy. Eventually became a therapist and a drug counselor. And um, I was busy and with the step family and and I went to a meeting every week. And it was my same home group. And um, I didn't exactly, you know, do things necessarily the way we advise. I didn't work the steps with a sponsor right away. But I stayed clean and sober. I went to a meeting every week. And I organized my life around being in recovery. My husband, I eventually married the guy. He, he was in recovery. My job, I got a job where I was hired as a dual diagnosis specialist or clinician or whatever they called it. So I identified myself as in recovery so, and um, was setting up this whole group program people with mental health and substance abuse issues in this uh, public clinic. So being clean and sober was like, it was a non-negotiable requirement of my personal and my professional life. And it was the center of my life. And um, I I loved that work. I, I really, I mean, you know, it's like I grew up in New York City and the weather was terrible and you couldn't see the sky. And so when I moved to California and I had beautiful weather and I could see the sky everywhere, it's like I really appreciated it. Well, I feel that same way about my career. I hated being a lawyer. It was like just, it was a torture to me. And so having work that I really believed in, I thought I was good at, I felt like I was contributing. It was just such, it was so wonderful. And um, so I, it, there, you know, there it was very difficult. There are a lot of bureaucratic bullshit crap I had to go through. Working in a county agency is not easy, but I was just very grateful for the work. And I worked there for 20 years, well, 19 years. And uh, then I retired in 2010, and um, I have 
a small private practice where I'm seeing the same clients, but um, just on my own terms. And um, since then, I've been really contributing a lot of my time to Marijuana Anonymous, doing service um, on all levels, um, sponsoring people, works being in service on the district level, on the world service level, and um, it's become even more a part of my life now. And one thing that's happened, and then I'll probably finish up, um, I don't know what time it is, but one thing that's, that's happened recently that I just want to say, you know, uh, for many years I just, you know, stayed clean and sober, went to my meeting every week, and it was just a given that I was a recovering person. And, um, you know, my family of origin, they just never got it. They never understood. Alcohol's a big thing for them. They just couldn't get why I didn't drink. But I just never, you know, this is what I do. And I... I never, I kept going to meetings because, well, this was my profession and it was sort of, you know, it was, I thought as as a drug counselor, mental health worker in recovery, it was important to go to meetings, you know. I'd, I'd heard bad stories about people relapsing who were in the field and it was just a, sort of an expe- expectation professionally. But I have to say I didn't really believe deep down that I was going to smoke pot again if I didn't go to meetings, but I never really tested it. Well, in recent years, I've been having a lot of pain. I've been having a lot of pain, um, basically arthritis. Uh, I've, I've always had issues with food and extra S weight, you know, but by the time you get into your 60s, it, your joints start to suffer. And um, less sciatica, a lot of pain. And all of a sudden, you know, medical marijuana is this big thing. And everybody's talking about CBD and, and you know, use marijuana as a pain reliever. And this woman I knew who was like 40 years in AA was using all this CBD tincture. And it's like all of a sudden I realized that if I hadn't been going to meetings all this time, if I hadn't made service to Marijuana Anonymous a huge part of my life, I might have talked myself into smoking again. And that was like a punch in the stomach. It's like, wow, thank you. Thank you, God. Uh, I, I didn't really realize, I didn't really, I didn't really believe that I needed the program. And now I know I did, I always did. And that I was fooling myself to think I ever didn't. And, you know, I just, I just, do not take my recovery for granted. I I still cry when newcomers come into my home group and get a chip. I've been doing it for fucking 33 years or something, and I still cry because we are miracles. Every single one of us is a miracle. That 1,000-ton anvil of my compulsion to use is still suspended an inch over my head. And it is a miracle that by the grace of my higher power, by the grace of our spiritual energy that we share with each other. I can live clean and sober today. And I am very, very grateful for that. And I'm grateful to all of you because you are an absolutely essential part of that. And uh, that's all I have to say, I guess. Thank you for listening.